Welcome to Teleforum, a podcast of the Federal Society's practice groups. I'm Dean Reuter, Vice President, General Counsel, and Director of Practice Groups at the Federal Society. For exclusive access to live recordings of practice group Teleforum calls, become a Federal Society member today at fedsoc.org. Welcome to the Federalist Society's webinar call. Today, March 29th, we discuss citizen suits, separation of powers, and the future of the Supreme Court's standing jurisprudence. My name is Guy DeSanctis, and I'm Assistant Director of Practice Groups at the Federalist Society. As always, please note that all expressions of opinion are those of the experts on today's call. Today, we are fortunate to have with us our moderator, Michael Bushbacher, Counsel, Boyding Gray and Associates. Throughout the panel, if you have any questions, please submit them through the question and answer feature or the chat so that our speakers will have access to them for when we get to that portion of the webinar. With that, thank you for being with us today. Michael, the floor is yours. Well, thank you, Guy. Um, citizen suits um, are one of my favorite topics. Uh, generally, they're referred to as a kind of private attorney general action, a uh, mashup maybe of key TAM and public nuisance. Um, where private citizens get to step into the shoes of the federal government and wield its authority uh, to enforce federal environmental law, uh, mostly, um, uh, or to uh, or to uh, force the government to comply with its own mandatory duties. And the power is, I think, quite um, striking in its scope. Unlike key TAM, um, environmental citizen suits aren't subject to direct governmental control. Uh, and in fact, under the Clean Water Act, at least, uh, citizens can actually intervene as of right, even in criminal enforcement matters um, as basically a co-prosecutor. I don't know if anyone's ever actually tried doing that. Um, Unsurprisingly, maybe, uh, the citizen litigation has played a, a truly outsized role in how environmental law and policy has evolved in the U.S. Uh, and for better or worse, uh, it means that there's just less democratic accountability um, than we see uh, elsewhere where you know who the prosecutor is or who the enforcer is and can hold them um, to account through the, the political process. And courts have intuited, I think, that there should be some kind of check on this. Um, but what that check should be has perhaps not been uh, self-evident. Uh, Justice Scalia was probably the, the leading uh, jurist in trying to find out what to do about it. And um, he, he approached the issue through the lens of standing. Uh, and starting with his very influential standing opinion in Lujan, uh, he charted a course uh, that would limit citizen suits and many other kinds of suits, more or less. Um, to the meets and bounds of, of traditional torts uh, in the environmental context that would be torts like public nuisance. But much of modern standing doctrine has become, well, maybe incoherent. Uh, we've seen um, since Lujan uh, other decisions like Friends of the Earth versus Laidlaw in 1999, which held that aesthetic injuries um, could suffice as an injury, in fact. And in Massachusetts versus EPA, of course, the Supreme Court granted special solicitude to states um, to sue when there's climate change issues that might affect sea level or something like that. Um, despite that special solicitude language, uh, we've seen in more recent years that uh, even uh, ordinary citizen plaintiffs have been uh, successfully obtaining standing, um, even if it's just based on climate change issues. At the same time, uh, it's not uncommon to see what might be called standing hawkishness, even in uh, bastions of more, uh, what we would think of as bastions of more liberal standing doctrine, like the Ninth Circuit. Um, uh, at least the cynical part of me says when, when it's an interest that the court doesn't like as much, um, which often happens to be more conservative interests, but not always. But in this way, I think we can quote Plato and saying that everything arises in this way, opposites from opposites. Um, standing also has been perhaps a bit embarrassing for the originalists uh, among us because uh, its origin has more to do with uh, the language, at least, used by William O. Douglas than anything you'll find in the Constitution or the Federalist Papers. So the topic for today, I think, is, is pretty open-ended, but I want to start with uh, the Supreme Court's recent decision in TransUnion versus Ramirez. Um, it's not an environmental case, but it is a standing case. The court considered a class action suit about errors in the processing and use of data um, by folks uh, whose data was used by the TransUnion company for credit score stuff. Uh, and five to four vote, the court held that despite Congress's uh, creation of a pretty broad cause of action that on its face would have let all the members in the class 
who had allegedly had uh, the um, their their data misused, uh, only those who had actually had uh, the injury of having that data shared um, were in a position uh, to to sue and had standing. Uh, Justice Thomas uh, disagreed with that and joined the three more liberal justices in dissent. And in his dissent, which is very interesting, I recommend it to you all, um, points out a number of the inconsistencies and tensions in standing doctrine of uh, of late. And he also cites a very interesting uh, concurring opinion by the 11th Circuit's uh, Judge Newsom, uh, who was appointed by President Trump. Uh, Judge Newsom says that standing uh, doesn't have a basis in the original meaning of the Constitution or doesn't have much of a basis in the original meaning of the Constitution. Uh, and that's it's been used to cabin Congress's authority in a way that's impermissible. Um, and says instead of looking at this through standing, we should just do a traditional separation of powers analysis. We've also seen other maybe contraindications in some areas uh, where folks who might be expected to be fans of citizen suits have said that they're worried about it. Um, oh, and I should mention that in, in uh, TransUnion and in Judge Newsom's opinion, there's a lot in there about uh, uh, citizen suits. Um, so for instance, with the um, some more skepticism about citizen suits has been uh, voiced with the respect to the Texas abortion law, SB 8, um, which you might remember, authorizes citizen suits and precludes uh, government enforcement. Uh, in its lawsuit, DOJ actually said that this uh, citizen suit provision was uh, unprecedented, which struck me as a little odd. Um, um, but it was very troubling to many folks on the court, obviously, uh, if you listen to the oral argument. So what does this all mean for the future? Um, one of the nice things about being a volunteer leader in the Federalist Society is that I can ask some very, very smart people who know a lot more about these sort of things to come and uh, and, and discuss it with me. So uh, that's what this panel, I hope, is going to be. And we have three uh, truly remarkable speakers here, um, and I'll briefly introduce them. First speaker is Professor uh, Richard Epstein. Uh, he's the inaugural Lawrence A. Tisch Professor of Law at NYU, uh, where he also serves as a director of the Classical Liberal Institute, which he helped found. He's served as the Peter and Kirsten Bedford uh, Senior Fellow at the Hoover Institution since 2000. And he's also the James Parker Hall Distinguished Service Professor of Law Emeritus and Senior Lecturer at the University of Chicago. He's a prolific scholar. He's written uh, countless articles on just about every topic you can imagine, as well as 15 books, well, maybe even more than 15 books now. The most recent, I think, is The Classical Liberal Constitution. Of relevance to our discussion today, Professor Epstein has been a trenchant critic of modern standing doctrine and of citizen suits, um, and I'm very eager to hear what he's going to have to say. We're also joined by Professor Robin Craig, uh, who is the Robert C. Packard Trustee Chair in Law at the USC Gould School of Law. Uh, she's a leading environmental scholar, particularly on all things water. Um, she's, like Professor Epstein, a very productive scholar, uh, the author or co-author of 12 books, including The End of Sustainability, Contemporary Issues in Climate Change Law and Policy, and The Clean Water Act and the Constitution. She's also the author of a, a really excellent article called Will Separation of Powers Challenges Take Care of Environmental Citizen Suits? Uh, which was published, uh, I think, back in 2001 and remains, to my mind, uh, the best and most comprehensive defense of citizen suits um, that's been written uh, and argues in part that standing doctrine ensures that citizen suits do not um, transgress the bounds of the Constitution's uh, separation of powers. And rounding out the panel, we're joined by my former colleague and good friend, John Brightbill. John's a partner in Winston and Strawn's Washington, D.C. office, where he does all kinds of fascinating high-stakes litigation. Uh, and before joining Winston, John was the nation's lead environmental uh, attorney um, at the uh, Department of Justice, where he served uh, as acting assistant attorney general in the Environment and Natural Resources Division. And not only did he do all the administrative work of leading uh, a division of 425 lawyers, but he also somehow found uh, time to personally argue many of the most important cases of the last administration, including defenses of the navigable waters protection rule and clean water um, rule repeal, uh, which he argued in the 10th Circuit and several district courts, and the affordable clean energy rule um, and clean power plan repeal, which he argued uh, for like nine or 10 hours, I think the argument went. Nine and a half. Nine and a half. <laughs> that's, I, man, um, in, in the D.C. Circuit. And that's the case that is now proceeding under the name West Virginia versus EPA in the Supreme Court. 
We'll start with uh, opening remarks from each of our panelists for about five to seven minutes. Then we'll have a time where they can each respond to each other. Uh, and then I might ask some questions and we'll turn it over to the audience for the last 15 minutes or so to submit questions. So with that, Professor Epstein, uh, please well, take it away. So thank you very much for having me here. I've been a trenchant committee of critic of so many parts of the American constitutional doctrine on standing. I don't know where to begin. And, and this case, I think, starts to show uh, some of the serious issues that are associated with the doctrine and with the design of these cases. And, and the first thing I want to talk about is not standing as such, uh, but a decisional choice about the way in which you want to run uh, enforcement in situations in which there are large numbers of diffuse harms to particular individuals. So it is perfectly clear that no individual person will bring a suit. Um, and therefore, the only two alternatives that are left are a direct government action, which imposes a fine and some kinds of restrictions, or a class action, which purports to give individual relief to people in the various classes. In my view, on that particular question, it is never a lockstep answer one way or another. A lot depends upon the nature of the class and the nature of the injuries asserted. But in this particular case, I think that the correct approach is, in fact, a direct regulatory approach. It's not that these harms don't matter. They matter a great deal. But it's very difficult to quantify the nature of the harm involved. And it turns out that if you're serious about class action stuff, there may be a common issue of law. Uh, but the notion that somehow the damages are all going to be uniform across different cases, I think, is somewhat fanciful. Or rather uniform. And so that you try to do the differences, I think it gets down into the real terrible problem. So uh, to me, this case could have been handled much more easily and by a pretty substantial substantial fine on these characters for the way in which they behave, and an injunction which has them to change their, their patterns of behavior. Uh, Justice Thomas, I think, had a very effective critique of what they did. Using names and only names in order to match people for a terrorist list is not, to my mind, a sufficiently strong filter. Even adding in something as simple as a birthday when there are lots of people named Ramirez is going to, I think, make a huge difference on that. Uh, so I think what happens is you want that and you want it quickly. One of the drawbacks of having this is a private litigation, you're still talking about this seven years after the original offense taking place. Whereas if this had been a more administrative procedure, you could have done it more quickly. Well, then the next question is, if you're going to go the private way, how do you do it? And the first thing, of course, is there is a huge question of why we have a standing doctrine, which is tied to separation of powers. Uh, we have standing doctrine in England where there's no separation of powers. We have standing doctrines in the state where there are, but not relevant standing doctrines. Uh, the term standing for whatever it's worth appears nowhere in the Constitution. And so this doctrine is to some extent the fact fabrication. And it also doesn't deal with the situations, as this case is. If you regard these statements as a form of defamation, and defamation is a common law form of action, why is it that you have to worry about separation of powers at all when you bring a federal case under diversity or under some other kind of arrangement, where in fact it, it turns out that you have injury? So you then get to the question of what you mean by concrete harm. And this term does not help explain a great deal what's going on. It does give you the following advantage. And those cases where people get run over by a truck or their entire bank account is robbed by some third person, you could call it concrete. Uh, but there is a real problem with respect to uh, concreteness and the general common law doctrines of general Tom of general damages under tort, which are exactly the opposite. What we do is we take a kind of a general assessment of where you stand. We don't have any real good, reliable information about the particular case. And so we kind of say to the jury, take a stab at that particular sort of thing. I don't see how the separation of doctrine helps you. And I think the concreteness test may allow you to recover in those cases, but there's also another problem. And this is the analytical problem that I'm going to stress which is when do you want to engage in the timing of particular action? Standing doctrine talks about redressability in some point, but the more accurate way to do this is to start with this traditional common law doctrine approach or an equitable approach and say, here's something that's happening. It may or may not occur. Uh, there is, in some cases, a high probability that it will occur. So you may want to do something now. But in many of these cases where it turns out that the information is gathered but never used, it seems to me vanishingly the low probability that the company is going to be stupid enough to send this thing out after it's been sustained. And so I think the correct way to do it is not to say that these cases can't be brought in federal court. It's to say, look, this is too soon under these circumstances. We're going to make sure that the case is more right before we take it on. And if you did that kind of thing, you would say, look, it's not that you're out of court. 
court. It's that you have to wait until it turns out that the actual harm starts to manifest itself. There is a tendency now, uh, particularly in privacy cases, to say the mere possession of data, which you might use in a bad way at some point in time, is sufficient to give people the right to remove it from the file. I think in general, the better approach is to wait until the harm occurs and then to reassess the situation to see whether or not there's need for some kind of structural remedy. So the term concrete simply has too much weight that's attached to it. And I thought, in effect, that if you did a more functional analysis of what went on in this particular case, you would say, look, it's not for the courts to decide whether or not uh, you have an administrative solution or a class action solution. But if you do have a class action solution, it is perfectly appropriate for the courts uh, to try to basically say, uh, we can use doctrines of latches or doctrines of unrightness and things of that sort in order to deal with these particular problems. And so what happens is I think the whole thing has a kind of an air of unreality. Too much weight is put on standing. Too much weight is put on the term concreteness. And so there's too little understanding that comes out of it. This is not a case, I think, in which anybody on the Supreme Court has covered themselves with glory. I think I learned most from the opinion of Justice Thomas. Why is that? Because he understood the institutional operation. And following from that kind of information, it seems to me that the administrative solution is preferable to uh, the class action solution, at least in these circumstances. So I'll stop there. All right. Excellent. Professor Craig. Thank you, Michael. And thank you, Michael and Guy, for inviting me to be part of this panel. Uh, I'm going to make several observations, some of which are connected, some of which aren't. Uh, I agree with Richard that too much weight is being put on standing. And while I would never argue that the court's standing jurisprudence is in any way completely coherent, I do think context matters. And so the fact that TransUnion was a class action uh, and the court got sticky about standing, to me, as someone who teaches civil procedure puts it in line with the whole line of cases where the court has been increasingly policing the use of the class action uh, to have expansive lawsuits. So uh, the court has uh, limited personal jurisdiction, for example, in class actions. So I think that context is important. I don't think it explains everything, but uh, that that to me is part of what was going on in the TransUnion case. Um, the other point I would make is that the Article 2 issue is not new. Uh, as Michael mentioned, I was writing about it in 2001. Uh, it's come up in Lujan versus Defenders of Wildlife. It came up in Steel Corporation. It came up in Laidlaw. And uh, as Judge uh, Newsom noted, there are a couple of things you have to think about when you get into the Article 2 arguments. And this is Article 2 uh, executive versus Congress, not executive versus Supreme Court, which is a, a different issue. Uh, but the Article 2 uh, issue, uh, you have to deal with key TAM litigation because part of why I was writing about it in 2001 is the Supreme Court has upheld key TAM litigation, which allows private citizens to be prosecutors. And to my mind, Judge Newsom didn't fully uh, deal with the outlier that might prove the rule. Um, the other thing you have to worry about in the environmental context is being able to articulate an Article 2 rationale that somehow says the delegation to private citizens is is problematic, but a delegation to states is not. And that's what gets lost sometimes in the Article 2 debate is uh, that citizen suits and enforcement authority are delegated to states as well as to private citizens, uh, as well as the ability to run environmental programs wholesale is, is delegated to states. So uh, there, there is the possibility if you go too far down the Article 2 rabbit hole that you will throw uh, the baby out with the bathwater, so to speak, and uh, get rid of the whole idea of cooperative federalism with the state. So I'll just throw that out as something to think about. Judge Newsom and, and Richard are completely right. The court did make up standing, whether it picked the best idea for trying to avoid advisory opinions. Uh, I, I don't think they did, but uh, they went down that rabbit hole and we are, are stuck with the uh, tests that have uh, resulted. 
The other thing I'll note about transunion that I think is unfortunate is uh, this desire to analogize injury to historical forms of injury. Uh, as was pointed out in the dissent, that limits Congress in creating new forms of injury for new realities, such as digital privacy, which the founders did not have to worry about. But it also has played out badly in other contexts. So if you think about Seventh Amendment jurisprudence and trying to analogize uh, statutory causes of action to something that existed at common law or equity. yeah, you, you can you can go any way you want to. And so uh, I think this kind of analogizing of both is too limiting on Congress, uh, but also doesn't really help the uh, figure out the issue. Um, two last points. First of all, uh, you mentioned the West Virginia case. Uh, standing or, and or mootness have come up in that case. It will be interesting to see if the Supreme Court gets into the discussion in that case and how it lines up or I suspect doesn't line up with TransUnion. And then finally, I just the larger point I would make, uh, citizen suits uh, and the administrative state more generally have never fit comfortably into the Constitution. And um, that's a piece we made once uh, in the 1930s. Uh, but every once in a while, we seem to have to remake that piece. Uh, and if we're going to have an administrative state, we just have to accept that sometimes how exactly we wedge it into the Constitution uh, doesn't feel quite natural because it's not. It's it's not in there either, just like standing isn't either. So uh, I will leave that with several remarks and uh, let Jonathan speak. Well, great. Thank you very much, Robin and Richard, and thank you to the Federalist Society and Michael for having me. I think this is an extremely interesting and timely top topic for the reasons that both Richard and Robin said. My perspective is not one of an academic, but of a practitioner who has spent uh, more than 20 years thinking about establishing standing for purposes of regulated entities, bringing challenges to agency actions, defeating standing where private litigants are trying to bring claims on behalf of putative classes, for example, when the plaintiffs themselves haven't suffered any harm that they're nevertheless alleging for others. Uh, For almost four years at the Department of Justice, uh, regularly asserting standing as a defense out of the uh, standard DOJ uh, playbook uh, to uh, preserve the separation of powers and defend agency and regulatory actions by EPA DOI, DOE, and others, and now back at uh, private practice, where I'm both uh, looking to assert standing uh, in the manner as defendants did in the TransUnion case to prevent overbroad cases from going forward with folks who are not injured, but again, now commonly contemplating how I can establish standing uh, for my clients seeking to challenge administrative uh, actions. So, One of the things that I think just from a practical matter about the standing doctrines and where they are today is that because they are so muddled, it is a doctrine that is very commonly one that is malleable and in the eyes of the beholder with respect to judges. Uh, We very commonly have regulated entities that are so injured and disturbed by what the government has done, that they are frankly prepared to spend hundreds of thousands of dollars or more bringing challenges uh, and therefore paying lawyers from funds that would otherwise be profits in order to um, uh, try to put a stop to certain regulatory actions. Um, Getting bounced then on account of uh, lack of standing um, and uh, then On the other side of the spectrum, we have uh, certain public interest groups that are regularly being granted standing to intervene in or challenge agency actions based on allegations of rising sea levels, greater hurricanes or droughts that are are alleged will occur over a period of many, many decades, notwithstanding that in any particular case, 
we're seeing minimal increases in carbon emissions at stake uh, going into the atmosphere, mixing with the carbon emissions of every other country in the world, marginally increasing the reflective capacity of the electromagnetic spectrum in the atmosphere, thereby trapping heat and uh, increasing by some marginal amount the documented general marginal warming trend and rising seas of the planet that's been going on since the end of the late medieval uh, Little Ice Age several hundred years ago. And that even if stopped, um, i.e. redressability, uh, are projected to be overcome and swamped by increasing emissions by China, India, and other developing nations. So uh, as a practitioner, I find myself counting noses and personalities on the Supreme Court. And while I'm academically interested in the standing debate, and I think that Justice Thomas and Judge Newsom raise very interesting questions, I don't see the standing doctrines going anywhere uh, anytime soon in any material way, um, given how now, unfortunately, or fortunately, uh, deeply ingrained this is uh, as compared to perhaps Judge Newsom's alternative framework. Uh, I'm more interested in whether Justice Thomas and Judge Newsom might ultimately now inspire renewed interest into whether and how Article 2 uh, precludes certain citizen administrative or common law challenges to the executive branch actions going forward and might be uh, asserted. Uh, obviously, at its core, as others have reflected here today, the standing doctrine is about protecting the separation of powers and excessive congressional and judicial interference in the executive function. And I can tell you after uh, almost four years at the Justice Department, that is unquestionably needed. During my time, we saw some real doozies, not the least of which was the Giuliana v. United States kids climate case, where a district court in Oregon recognized a constitutional right to a sustainable climate system and was weeks away from holding a trial about whether that district court judge in Oregon should begin managing by injunction the affairs of every executive branch agency of the United States, uh, like we've seen on smaller scales with wayward prisons and school systems, uh, before the United, the United States Supreme Court ultimately intervened and told the Ninth Circuit to take a hard look at whether there really was standing there. Uh, and the Ninth Circuit uh, ultimately concluded mm -hmm. that there was not. So I, I'm not an academic, so I concede I might have some of the details wrong. But getting back to this issue of, of Article 2, there was, as previously noted, about a 15-year period from the amendment of the False Claims Act in the 1980s until the Vermont agency case uh, in the Supreme Court where litigants were asserting uh, Article 2 uh, and uh, challenging the constitutionality of, of the key TAM provisions of the False Claims Act. And uh, uh, I, I believe uh, ultimately, I, I would have to double check, but you know uh, that many of those issues or some of those issues, at least as it relates to Article 2, uh, remain open <laughs> and certainly uh, whether and how some of those principles might be different in that key, key TAM context as opposed to environmental citizen suits, I think remain to be decided. So I need to wrap up here, but for those who are interested um, for a fascinating look at this question, uh, I, as well as a telling peek behind the curtain of how the sausage making is made and difficult legal and policy decisions are reached uh, at the Justice Department, I commend uh, you to the opinion of the Office of Legal Counsel on the Constitutionality of the Key Tam Provisions of the False Claims Act, which is published at 13 uh, Opinions of OLC 249 from July of 1989. It is a memo to the Attorney General of the United States at the time, one uh, Dick Thornburg, uh, used to be my governor, uh, and uh, by the then Assistant Attorney General for the Office of Legal Counsel, who was none other than uh, William P. Barr. So- The Barr. Yes. So, and then Assistant Attorney General Barr was taking issues with and disputing the views of the U.S. Solicitor General at the time, who was none other than one Kenneth W. Starr, and invoking the views of many others who went on to other greater fame outside their service of the Justice Department, uh, such as uh, John R. Bolt. So uh, then, as I said, Assistant Attorney General Barr was arguing uh, that the uh, to the Attorney General that the False Claims Act uh, key TAM suits are unconstitutional and taking issue in a in what turns out to be an unusually public way. 
with the contrary views of the then Solicitor General. Uh, and, but I can tell you that uh, what you see going on in that memo uh, is something that uh, repeats in administration after administration. Uh, and uh, and I'll, I'll just limit myself to saying occurred on some uh, particular issues uh, even during the last administration. So uh, in, in similar form. So I, uh, I, I agree with Judge Newsom ultimately that Article 2 should receive another look as a potential break on how Congress and the judiciary is interposing itself into the executive branch. Uh, if we had more time, I could go on uh, and talk about many dysfunctions that uh, exist by virtue of what I think, uh, to echo Professor Epstein, is a premature involvement uh, by the judiciary uh, and litigants into the affairs of the executive branch. Comments? Yeah, so let's open yeah. up the floor, uh, Professor Epstein. Go ahead. Yeah, look, um, I have uh, this. What I just heard, I thought it was quite learned from Jonathan. It was why it is that the Trump administration is opposed to citizenship because it knows it's not going to bring those suits themselves. Uh, but you know, this has to be a doctrine for all season. And so now we have the Biden administration, which, in my view, issued and I just wrote about this one of the dumbest memos about how we're going to use the disclosure laws in order to force people to talk up about these situations. It's bad from so many points of views you can't begin to count. So if we treat this as an Article 2 issue, uh, now what we do is we bring the same ridiculous lawsuits about global warming that were brought by private parties, and now we do it through uh, the executive branch. And if the only thing we're doing is treating this as essentially a, a standing issue, all of those defenses are just gone. The Biden administration can do it. I'm much more interested in the substance. And it seems to me that the kind of suits that we're talking about are dumb, whether they're brought by the government or whether they're brought by a private party. The arguments associated with prematurity coming much too soon and asking relief, which is much too um, extensive, is in fact the standard kind of argument that you can make in any case involving equitable jurisdiction, i.e. where you see some form of injunctive relief. And so I'm very uneasy about putting all my eggs in the standing basket, because then I cannot control what I regard as a very serious menace, which is the Biden administration's position. Well, just about everything. I mean, I can't think of a single thing they do, which I regard as minimally coherent in any of the areas in which I work. And I work in a lot of areas. So I think, in effect, that what we really have to do is to recognize that the limits of judicial capacity are there. And I think that's fine. Then the next problem comes. So the Biden administration says we're not going to go to court. What we're going to do is we're going to pass the statute and we're going to force it. And they get the statute through. And it does exactly the same thing. I have exactly the same problems with respect to that. Uh, there are certain kinds of situations where it's just not handleable, even through an administrative kind of process. And so, you know, if you're trying to figure out with global warming how it is that each and every firm is going to be fine for its contributions to this, that, or the other thing, I regard that as a complete fool's errand. Now, why do I do this? I'm just going to mention one other thing is there is a kind of a sacred creed, which I descend from, uh, that somehow or other, if you really want to deal with climate change, carbon dioxide is the culprit, and maximum effort should be done with that. I regard that as just bad science um, from start to finish. Uh, if you're trying to figure out even the most simple question about what determines climate, Water vapor is a factor which is probably 75 to 100 times more potent than carbon dioxide. And we know that every day because when the clouds come up, the land gets cold. Nobody says, oh, my God, it really is hot today because we have an excess of carbon dioxide relative to norms. And so I think, in effect, what you have to do is to rethink this all the way down. And in general, um, my long term position is that using all the various kinds of procedural tools to try to control things in a way which I think by implication is we don't look at the merits is never going to work. I think ultimately to deal with these issues, we have to look at the merits. And the tragedy is the current Supreme Court is very hostile to that approach. They didn't do a single thing about COVID that dealt with the science of the disease. It was all straight administrative law. And I think we're going to get ourselves into very serious troubles if we do not try to address these kinds of issues in every single form where they're available to see whether or not the science and the kind of relief we're talking about is amenable to either judicial, executive, or legislative action. So I leave it at that for the moment. Any other reactions from uh, the panelists to the remarks you've, uh, we've, we've heard? Come on, Robin. 
Yeah, I'll throw Excellent. in, um, you know, first of all, standing is broader than uh, climate change, which has, I will agree with Richard, although I probably would come out on the opposite side of most things, uh, unique features that uh, flummox uh, uh, typical lawsuits. However, to go back to Massachusetts versus EPA and to, to point out of what Justice Thomas and uh, Judge Newsom were getting at in their uh, respective opinions, Massachusetts versus EPA uh, was arguably a pretty simple case for getting to the merits. There was a petition. Does the Clean Air Act cover greenhouse gases? Yes. No, carbon no. dioxide. The big Car difference. Well, carbon dioxide is a greenhouse gas, but yeah, I mean, there was so there sulfur were, dioxide and nobody doubts that that's covered. Right. So sulfur dioxide is covered. But anyway, there were more, more than just carbon dioxide in the lawsuit. But the point is, there was a petition to the EPA. The petition was denied. Can you appeal that? I mean, this is where the, the judge, Justice Thomas logic makes perfect sense. Yes. All right. You think they were wrong. You should be able to appeal to that. Why are we going through uh, a convoluted standing analysis to say, you know, you have a cause of action. You personally were affected by that decision. Uh, it was your petition. Go for it. Uh, and I, I think his gut level approach to injury and transunion also resonates with a lot of people too. But I, uh, uh, you know, when you get into other uh, types of lawsuits where the remedy you're asking for in the climate change cases is that a government engage in wholesale uh, regulation, I think the remedy raises constitutional problems. Uh, however, even then, I would prefer that the courts articulate why the remedy is problematic rather than articulate why these particular plaintiffs shouldn't be uh, in court, uh, which in Juliana, I think was a little, you know, manipulating standing to get a result when uh, I think uh, I, I agree with Rich. I think the courts have been uh, avoiding a lot of merits issues that actually need to be decided so that everybody knows what the rules of the game are. And uh, also to Richard's point, who has the responsibility for dealing with it? If we're not going to allow these kinds of lawsuits, then it's pretty clear that the responsibility is in the legislative and executive branches and move forward. So like, but like I said, I think it's important to remember the standing context uh, or the standing doctrine affects a lot of different lawsuits uh, in a lot of different kinds of contexts in a lot of different administrative Mm -hmm. statutory and common law postures that require some simpler rules. Yeah, look, I'm going to say the following thing. I thought the EPA stuff, I'm not worried about the standing. I think if you try to look at the statutory scheme and explain why carbon dioxide is a pollutant as against everything else that's on the list, nitrous oxide, SO2, and so forth, uh, it just simply doesn't work. I mean, first of all, there's the only pollutant in the world, which if you drive its consumption to zero, life ends on Earth. So you can't say that carbon dioxide as such is a pollution. You have to specify some level above which you um, cannot go before it becomes a pollution. We don't know what that number turns out to be. Uh, there are many people who are serious on this are saying if you're worried not so much about greenhouse gases, but about soil synthesis, the optimal level of carbon dioxide is not 400 parts per million, it's 700 parts per million. And that, in fact, the greening that has taken place in the last 30 years on the Earth is probably much more attributable to the rise in carbon dioxide than any disability associated with greenhouse gases. I think somebody has to talk about that. But the other point is that was a case in which Justice Stevens thought it was imperative upon him with science, which was quite terrible, uh, to force to see the administration to issue an order explaining why it is that carbon dioxide is a pollutant. Um, that's a very different thing uh, from the normal type situation. And uh, what made it so crazy is if you start looking at the quantities that are involved, with every pollutant, you start having minimum quantities and so forth. And if, in fact, a major facility is judged by the amount of emissions, 
under the rule without some alteration, virtually everybody who owns a single family home, everybody who exhales every day is in fact a pollution source subject to regular on the government. So what they had to do to make the statute work was to change the quantity provision associated with its operation. And so the argument on this one is, look, I'm going to fight virtually everything that this Congress is going to do on the merits. Uh, but I think at the very least, one can say trying to whipsaw this stuff into a statute which didn't cover it is not preferable to a situation of having a carbon dioxide specific statute, which we could then try to figure out how we evaluate with respect to its merits on which uh, Robin and I may disagree on the science, but at least I think we're in the right place on that stuff. Whereas in this case, uh, doing it in this particular fashion, all we saw is that Justice Stevens was very sore that Brown and Williamson came down. They didn't say that the FDA had the power to regulate tobacco. This was a terrible dissent, as was uh, the situation of Breyer. And now he's trying to get even by distinguishing a case which clearly cuts in the opposite direction. So uh, this was not the finest hour of the Supreme Court on that. And again, I think Robin's right. You have to look at the substance no matter what the form and the constant effort to use procedural devices to avoid this means that you don't get any understanding by anybody anywhere. And that can't be the way to run a very complicated scientific system of regulation. Unless there are any further responses, I, I'd, I have a question or two I'd like to ask. And we've got some good questions queued up in the chat as well that I'll get to. Shoot. Um, so my, you know, one of the interesting puzzles, I think that the founders got wrong uh, is the incentive structure for uh, regulation and thinking that Congress would really want to be in charge of stuff. It turns out that there's a strong incentive to um, not make decisions that could then be brought up to uh, say that you did a bad job and maybe you should lose your job uh, as a, as a Congress person or as a Senator. And it seems to me that's behind a lot of the pressure that we see in a number of different areas, which is Congress doesn't act or it acts in generalized ways, or um, it acts by deputizing um, citizens. And it creates a situation, I think, where you have uh, not only suboptimal policies, but you've got a sort of decision structure where you've got people who aren't particularly good at making these kinds of decisions, making them, whether, you know, I think we can all agree that like national environmental policy is something that should be decided nationally. Um, and it shouldn't mm -hmm. be decided by a single court Thanks. as in Juliana or something like that. So I'm just curious what the, um, if we're going to be critical of standing, and I think we all have to some extent expressed criticisms of the court's standing jurisprudence, what other things might, uh, sort of structural constraints might be appropriate uh, and I'll go ahead and advance one that I think uh, Justice Kennedy floats in in his Laidlaw concurrence, where he says, listen, this isn't a standing or a mootness issue. I think there's an injury, but maybe we should look at this again in some other case where people raise arguments about just pure separation of powers. So maybe John uh, is right that standing doctrine is not going away, but might it be the case that uh, adding some uh, additional kind of separation of powers constraints might set up the incentives in a different way to encourage decision-making by the folks who are in kind of the right place to make decisions. But not if the government turns out to be the mischief maker. I mean, this is fine. Look, if, if John is running the EPA or everything in Washington, I'm quite happy to let the government do it. In fact, I wrote a fairly extensive defense of the uh, Trump administration's environmental rules with respect to global warming and other situations. But my God, when you get the other guys coming in, I just don't have that. And to me, they're just wrong on the merits, wildly overproductive. I mean, look, I have a debate with my colleague, Ricky Rivez. Just a simple point. Uh, he says, well, we need bold moves, which is to switch everything over to solar and to wind, right? As opposed to improving natural gas. Now, I think that's a serious debate. I regard the idea that you could run this whole system out of two untested technologies with massive disabilities as just madness. It's not that I'm going to ban anything. Uh, but, you know, I'm going to apply the same rules to them. I do to everything else. If you cover ground and that's normally going to create genuine dislocations uh, uh, to habitats and stuff, uh, the Endangered Species Act applies to them as it does to everything else. If you're going to send out wind terminals that create noises and kill birds, again, you have the same kind of constraints that are going to apply with respect to those. But a general proposition that carbon dioxide is so bad, meaning that we have to shut down fossil fuels and do everything else, 
is I think just the height of your responsibility. Now, uh, Robin, I mean, I, I regard you as a center left guy and I'm a center right guy on these things, but you wouldn't want to put all your eggs in one basket, would you? On energy? Uh, uh, no, uh, for a variety of reasons. And, uh, you know, I, I agree if we're going to have a national climate policy, it should be a national policy and it should be preferably done by Congress. Although I share, uh, I mean, our, our system was set up to inhibit action by Congress and we're at a moment when we need action by Congress and uh, have some other factors going as well. But, uh, you know, on the, the carbon dioxide issue, yeah, we need some changes to the energy system, uh, but they, it has to be broad. Um, hydropower is not going anywhere. Uh, nuclear is apparently coming back. But, you know, that that ideally should be a decision for Congress uh, or Congress in conjunction with some delegated authority to particular agencies, uh, not something that standing doctrine can get to uh, immediately, which is the focus of this. So, uh, yeah, I, I, I'm all for diversification. But like I said, that yeah. that's off topic from standing. So, yeah, but the point is, it's the only topic really worth debating. I mean, uh, Jonathan, do you well, I think that, that I think the point. Well, go, go ahead, John. Go ahead, Richard. I'm sorry. You were I just want to ask you when you were in the Trump administration, uh, were you trying to put all your eggs in one basket or were you trying to use some degree of diversification on energy supply? Well, look, so I was at the Justice Department, the Environment Division, right? So yeah. we were not the policymakers. We were defending what came to us, but certainly we were defending policies across the range of of energy options. And that was a significant, significant desire and, and policy goal of the administration as a whole. And, you know, as circling back, of course, to standing, right, I think that one of the things that is, uh, there seems to be some consensus here on this panel is it is a doctrine that is both uh, overbroad and perhaps uh, also not broad enough, depending on on particular cases and scenarios. I, for one, you know, as a a younger lawyer and as a practitioner, took standing as as kind of served up in a handful of Supreme Court cases that were taught to me. Uh, in uh, when I was in law school in the late 90s, and then as it continued to evolve. But it's interesting to go back and look at how really recent the modern standing doctrine is, and then uh, its lack of textual hook, and then also all of the various uh, exceptions that have been kind of attached to this thing in order to make it uh, continue to work uh, as, as something that allows cases that in the eyes of the judiciary should um, should get heard uh, to go forward um, while at the same time bouncing other cases that in the eyes of the judiciary and whoever those judges are at the time, you know, they have some kind of gut reaction that it shouldn't go forward. So um, and that seems to be what's happening on uh, many of the marginal cases is that is when you start to get into these hard questions, it's very, very, very judge determinative as to whether or not they may find standing. And that reveals a doctrine that, you know, that uh, perhaps needs some additional work or analogs. And like, like I said, I think, you know, perhaps uh, a reconsideration of article two, as judge Newsom has suggested is, is, is in order. When you look back at say, you know, the summer of the earth Island case, um, the, uh, the, the 1992, the Lujan cases, right? I mean, those are cases that I think that there is a, when I think about the breadth of what those are and the nature of what the allegations were by the plaintiffs uh, and what they were trying to do, you know, those were uh, instances where there seemed to be a desire to intervene at a very kind of early, premature uh, and and sensitive level in what it was that the that the executive branch was going, was going to do, you know, it's amazing to me. And one of the things that I was really, really surprised by um, serving at, at, at NRD was the number of citizen suits and then mandatory duties um, and, and and discretionary, you know, where there really ought to be discretionary, but the number of mandatory duty lawsuits and injunctions piled on top of injunctions for missed deadlines under the Clean Air Act and the Clean Water Act that were imposed by Congress in the 1970s 
when administrative procedures and litigation wasn't near, weren't nearly as uh, involved, uh, expensive, and expansive as they have uh, subsequently developed to be, requiring more and more effort by the executive branch in order to take any uh, agency action whatsoever now with the number of litigants out there. Um, and and uh, therefore, you just have, and you know, at the same time, Congress hasn't provided uh, EPA or any of the federal agencies the really resources. the resources. Yes, the resources that would be necessary to keep up with these deadlines. And so you have a really dysfunctional arrangement on a variety of environmental and natural resource program areas where you've got just injunction after injunction and mandatory duty after mandatory duty layered on top of each other in such a way that you don't have the executive branch. And I'm going to refer to the executive branch now in the least partisan and just, you know, to, um, to you know, credit to the, to the many, you know, just want to do right by the people, civil servants that I, that I spent time with. Um, you know, those people cannot set priorities in a reasonable and rational way across the range of pollutants and species and just across the programs uh, that are that, that really are needed. But it, instead, you have this circumstance where, you know, the most sensationalized pollutant of the day or the cutest critter uh, of the week uh, is the one that is the subject of the lawsuit and then is getting the priority vis-a-vis -vis the executive branch agencies, even though if you took a step back and let the executive branch do what it needed to do, the priorities really ought to be set in other ways. We should take questions or something. Yeah. So let me, let me turn now to um, a couple audience questions we have here in the chat. So Here's one um, from um, uh, from one. I actually can't see the name, but um, I'll just read it. Granting that the precise scope of the standing doctrine is extremely difficult to articulate over the wide range of factual scenarios in which it can occur. I'd like to question the idea, says the commenter, that standing is an imagined doctrine from a constitutional perspective. Isn't standing or something like it implicit in the Constitution's grant of a judicial power to the third branch government? How else are federal courts to distinguish between their role as courts uh, from their role, uh, the roles of their coordinate branches? And isn't this what Federalist 78 had in mind when it refers to um, the, the courts as having being the weakest branch and having only the power of judgment? In other words, I think this, this is the question of advisory opinions. If, yeah, but if you're not having standing, what's the line? Well, advisory opinions are not involved in any of these cases. And in fact, if you were to go into anywhere else other than an Article Three court, uh, all of these cases would be decided in favor of allowing standing, and most of them would be tossed out on other grounds. And so what happens with our standing doctrine, it's so ineptly done, when you put redressability into standing, it's not a standing question anywhere else in the face of the civilized world. It's a question of whether or not an equitable remedy is something that could be managed. If so, you give it. If not, you don't give it. So to give you the simplest case, a court of equity would generally not give a specific performance of a straight employment contract because of the difficulties associated with supervision. Now, if it comes out that you're trying to figure out, well, let's manage the entire economy through this, that's going to be even more. But somebody said, well, you have to do things. Well, maybe then you have to use a magistrate to start to deal with it. But all of these questions have nothing to do with standing. They have to do with judicial management. And the great tragedy is putting all this stuff into one word means you never get a candid discussion of any of the relevant issues. So keep out advisory opinions. There hasn't been one sort since John Jay did it back in the old, or they did it back before John Jay in 1794 or whatever it was. It's just, that's a, a class that right not to give advisory opinions, but nobody He's asking for advisory opinion in any of the cases that have been bought. Have they? I can't think of any. I think what Jonathan said is not that they're asking for advisory opinion. They're so bossy. What they're doing is they're subject you to multiple commands that you don't have the time to recharge and inconsistent command, which mean that if you've argued one of these things, you're necessarily going to be violated by somebody else. And uh, you cannot have an administrative system which just creates right after right after right and never figures out how these things are to be reconciled with one another. There's a kind of a promiscuity of environmental regulation, I think, which really has to be tamped down. So, uh, Professor Craig, I think you might point to the Supreme Court's uh, recent consideration of West Virginia versus EPA as something that might run into an advisory opinion sort of scenario. I'm curious I, if I you have any thoughts on that. I, that's not my own view, but but you and yeah. I have chatted about it. So, yeah, I, I think you can frame it that way. It, it's certainly in an unusual posture, uh, unusual set of circumstances. Uh, it also. 
Uh, and there are different ways that the stay is characterized that influence wh whether you think it's an advisory opinion or not. But one way to look at it is the people who won below are seeking who knows what uh, to have uh, a, a rule that was declared um, invalid. Um, if they wanted that resurrected, OK, fine. It's a straight up administrative law case. Uh, but the, the attention seems to be on the clean power plan and like i said that kind of depends on factually and legally what uh the status of the state is in your opinion i i have read at least five different characterizations of it of it um and and so but you know if the clean power plan is clearly dead and the uh ace rule that they fought against below is also dead um what actually are we deciding? Like I said, if, if the court decides to go into standing, um, I think they're actually better to go into mootness. But if they decide to go into standing, uh, it will be interesting to see how they thread that needle and and how it reconciles with any other opinion on standing they, they've issued recently. So, like I said, you know, I I. I think it's an interesting issue, but um, key to it all is is how you interpret that stay of the clean power plan. And that may be one of the issues they get to or not. So um, we'll yeah, just that, I couldn't just because... I could not disagree more. I mean, I just I think it's a layup of a standing case. There's no issue of mootness. I mean, you know, it's a, the, the, if you go back and you read that decision from the D.C. Circuit, they held that the, the clean power plan was legal or could have been legal, and therefore it was not properly repealed, and, uh, and you could not move to the ACE rule rationally since the entire basis for moving to the ACE rule was that you couldn't do the clean power plan. Um, and, and in terms of the moving from the CPP to ACE. And that's it. That that was the whole entire basis for the D.C. Circuit's decision. And the West Virginia folks and the uh, and the industry supporters there, they want the ACE rule. They want the ACE rule because the ACE rule recognizes federalism. The ACE rule does not require states and industries to enter into cross-subsidization yeah. um, it, uh, situations where you're going to have to be buying credits from one state that are then paid for by the consumers in your own state, state. therefore uh, subsidizing uh, the, mm. you know, uh, the, the states that have built wind, wind and solar already. They want the ACE rule. And where the record stands is if the Clean Power Plan decision at the D.C. Circuit is vacated, that was the sole entire basis at this point for vacating the ACE rule. They didn't get onto any of the other issues that were raised and argued. The ACE rule is back. They are redressed. End of story. Well, let's hope it's that way. But I think what happened <laughs> is the deliberate, I thought the uh, District of Columbia decision in that case was a almost a pathological study in conscious ambiguity. Um, they didn't tell us what they really wanted to do, which is why everybody is starting to argue about this. I thought that the clean air, the clean power plant went way beyond the scope. I thought everybody who said that when you're talking about a system, you're talking about a system of regulation and there are subsystems. So you have a system of how you control everything in the house and you have an air conditioning system beneath and so forth. But the idea that you're talking about an ecosystem is the relevant unit, which is what they said, struck me as being beyond absurd in terms of the way in which the structure of the act works. Um, so I, I think the options are this, uh, the clean power act has to to go. Power plan has to go because it's beyond the scope of the section. Uh, then the question is, is, does the ACE Act stand? If you're trying to say that this thing was arbitrary and capricious, which she did say, then presumably she's saying it's void. And I think what you should do is just basically reverse it. Often being arbitrary and capricious is probably the preferable interpretation, at which point I think Jonathan would win. Uh, but God knows whether or not they're going to end up there because look at the mess they made in Transamerica. What gives you confidence they're going to get it right as a uniform body here? Yeah, you know, we're just about done in time, right? Yeah, I'm afraid we are. So uh, 
I really wish we could get to more of the questions and I've, I've really enjoyed this conversation and I want to thank you all and uh, the Federalist Society for uh, putting this on and for participating. And uh, maybe we can have a follow-up conversation uh, some point in the future to talk about all these very interesting issues because I certainly have enjoyed it. So thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Good to see everybody. And thank you for putting it together. You almost needed an hour and 15 minutes for this one. (laughs) Yes, thank you. On behalf of the Federalist Society, I want to thank our experts for the benefit of their valuable time and expertise today. And I want to thank our audience for joining and participating. We also welcome listener feedback by email at info at fed-soc.org. As always, keep an eye on our website and your emails for announcements about upcoming virtual events. Thank you all for joining us today. We are adjourned. Thank you for listening to this episode of Teleform, a podcast of the Federalist Society's practice groups. For more information about the Federalist Society, the practice groups, and to become a Federalist Society member, please visit our website at fedsoc.org.